Welcome to Depolarize. Hi. There was a question how many times I would go before we spoke words. Turns out two. Two times is the answer. Uh, this is a podcast. I'm Dan Koch. I'm Ellen Morrow, and You're, I'm trapped with this man. <laughs> You're Ellen Morrow. You're trapped with me until we're done recording. And this is a podcast that looks for common ground at the intersection of faith, politics, and psychology. So sick of saying that. You all should the cross time. yourself and you say, "I feel like you <laughs> should." Yeah. Oh no! Say the the intersection of faith, politics, and psychology in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And today we are asking a question for which we got context last week, and that question is: Should you stay or should you go out of evangelicalism? Should you stay evangelical or should you leave? And. I already have a question right off the okay, bat, Okay, what's your Dan. question? Okay, since we decided I was an evangelical because I took that dumb test. Which I administered lovingly, yeah. Yeah. How the hell do you just leave a belief system? Well, what am I going to sure. go home tonight and be like, you know what? I don't believe that I should go out and speak the gospel. I don't think that's important. <laughs> no, you probably, you certainly can't change the, like the, your main theological tenets that you hold to. I think the question is more like, should you find a different church community that is outside of evangelicalism? That's the question. Okay. Really. I'm glad we clarified that yes. because I was very uh, distraught over here. <laughs> thinking, you were like, I'm trapped. Oh my gosh. You don't need to listen to last week's episode about the crazy moment we're in in evangelicalism, although it is helpful for context. And we're going to mostly hear from two women today. Yes. Plus Ellen. Danielle Mayfield, (laughs) who is a author, blogger, former missionary, currently works with refugee populations in Portland, and Caitlin Beatty. She is an author and the former editor of Christianity Today. And a speaker and, and writer and all of that. And the question is, if we could put those two episodes together and put it in one sentence, it would be, given how crazy it is, what a crazy moment it is to be an evangelical in America, and of course we're referring especially to Trump support, continued Trump support, and everything that that entails. Me too, time's up, Cardi yeah. B. <laughs> Cardi B made it in somehow. Who should stay evangelical? And who should go to greener pastures? You ready to wait tackle a second? This? Now, wait a second. What if greener pastures is evangelical for some people? Yeah, but that's so this this episode is not about which Catholics should become evangelical. Okay. That does is that happen? Intri- that happens. Uh, it does happen. Yeah, it totally happens. You know, my father-in-law was raised like mainline Lutheran and became an evangelical. I was here right? about the opposite. Yeah, no, People it happens are like both ways. Getting their shit together and becoming Catholics. <laughs> that's just because of who you hang out with. Anyway, that's so that's what we're talking about today. And we've got these two brilliant women. So let's just jump in here. We're going to start with Danielle Mayfield. And here's my conversation with her. Danielle, what does the word evangelical mean to you now, today in 2018? I think for me, evangelical just means almost like a culture, (laughs) like it's something I grew up in. And now that it has gained such political importance, I think more people are starting to recognize it, not just as like a particular brand of Protestant Christianity, but as 
an entire culture unto itself. And actually, you know, I grew up, I didn't know I was an evangelical Christian. It's not like we use that word. And in fact, I didn't even really hear that word until I was going to Bible college. But once I heard the term, I thought, yeah, that's me. You know, I grew up wanting to evangelize people and thinking that, you know, I had all the correct doctrine and I wanted to share that with other people and bring them into the fold. But I was really unaware of larger church history and of my own place in it, which I actually now think is a hallmark of American evangelicalism. (laughs) I was homeschooled, you know, pastor's kid, all this stuff. I've been like rereading my history textbooks, which were Christian homeschool textbooks. And yeah, it's just this longing for power, for being in control and being in a simpler world where just everyone was Christian and, you know, there are no problems. And I'm like, wow, we really were getting this from a young age. Yeah. Make America great again. Right. And it's it's just a particular brand of that. Yeah. I mean, even these textbooks would say America was a nation blessed by God up until the Civil War, at which point the godless liberal North, you know, like destroyed and split into two God's great nation. If only we could get back to that time before then. It's incredible. It's incredible. That's not an angle that I ever got in my Christian textbooks. I did get a lot of like during the Revolutionary War, God sent this fog storm to confuse the British, but I never got the sort of what do they call it? The way they call the South, like the noble cause or whatever, the Civil War. What what books did you read growing up? I think up? it was mostly Abeka books was the brand. Oh, you got to go back, man, because it's in there. You probably really? don't remember. Wow. But even some of the more subtle ones, like this is what they'll do. They'll, in the section on the Civil War, they will profile like three or four generals from the South and talk about what good Christians they are. And then they won't talk about any Northern generals except possibly Abraham Lincoln. But all the Southern generals, you know, they held Bible studies for their slaves, were an amazing people. Like Robert E. Lee is like the bee's knees in Nebeka history textbooks. Like it's, it's wild. It's absolutely wild. I mean, geographically, it makes sense, right? Because Nebeka books comes out of Tallahassee and Bob Jones, I think. Is right. that correct? Yeah. Yeah. But it's crazy that you and I could have been raised on the West Coast in the 90s being mm-hmm. taught that. Yeah. And I mean, again, I want to go back to why. Why were these textbooks like this? And, you know, we can't even get into what they said about the indigenous peoples in the U.S., right? But basically it was just they didn't follow God. And so they deserved, you know, to be conquered and and all this stuff. And there's so many of these threads of we've got to get back to this place. So the founding fathers in the Constitution are obviously thought of as being amazing and inspired by God and all this stuff. And so in the age of Trump, it's been really hard to go back and read this stuff and say like, oh my gosh, I was being set up for this kind of longing to return to this mythical place. Totally. Abeka is the number one Christian textbook publisher. So what does it mean to stay in the evangelical church now as an adult in 2018, more broadly connected to the rest of the world? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And 
I think what is interesting is what happens when people do start to leave the bubble. You know, there's a lot of different reactions people can have. And I know for myself, I've definitely gone on the roller coaster of being disillusioned, which is a really common response once people start to interact with viewpoints and experiences that are different from their own. You know, for me, it happened when I became friends with people who were Muslim, people who were in poverty, people who are refugees, you know, all these communities that I had just been raised to think I could go and help them and convert them. And I wasn't expecting to receive any insight or knowledge about God or the world from them, but I did. And so just starting to reconcile (laughs) that there's other perspectives and, and what do we do with that and how do we operate in a world that is, you know, pluralistic. I think a lot of people just say, okay, this is sort of cult-like and I'm done with it. But for me, I am a good little evangelical and I want to convert people. (laughs) So I've sort of decided I want to remain in and I want to try and help from within. So I still have that little, you know, evangelism bug inside of me. And it's now just being pointed back at the church, which is kind of funny. So you would say more that you're staying within the evangelical fold And you're evangelizing your fellow evangelicals toward the fact that there is a lot out there that we can learn from people other than evangelicals. Yeah, that's one way to put it. And I also would say a part of my goal is to help kind of parse why evangelicalism is such a bubble, why it was designed that way, and what are the values that we've been absorbing in that community for so long. And one thing that's become really clear to me, you know, with the 2016 election is this desire for cultural power that has been really powerful within evangelicalism. And I think it's now made evident to everyone, you know, what evangelical Christians are willing to do in order to gain this cultural power. And so what I want to do is say, hey, If you really are someone who takes Jesus seriously, then let's look at what he says about power (laughs) and obtaining power in the world. Or, you know, if you're someone who says they're following Jesus, let's look at what Jesus has to say about affluence and poverty and, and just really bringing it back to Jesus. But also, how are we living our lives in the world and what is kind of our end goal here? Do you think that you have decided to stay evangelical or in a sense do you not have a choice based on sort of who you still are today? Yeah, I feel like I am all over the map with that question, but I have sort of settled into this belief that evangelicalism is a part of me. And as much as I would sometimes want to just wash my hands of it all, I feel a responsibility to it. I feel the need to try and reform it from within And I think I'm just going to keep agitating within evangelicalism until I get kicked out. That's sort of my philosophy (laughs) at this point. What types of evangelicals should stay, in your opinion, and who maybe should leave? Like what what is the kind of thing someone could look for in their own heart experience, personality type, etc.? Well, I don't exactly know what we're talking about here, because again, in my mind, it's a culture, 
right? It's my family members. It's people I grew up with. It's my peers that I went to Bible college with. You know, it's people in my Facebook feed. They're all evangelicals. But if you're talking about the church, I think it's totally fine to find places to worship where you really can connect with a loving God and people who are trying to follow Jesus. And so if your church or your faith community has been co-opted by, you know, politics and a quest for power, I think it's totally fine to leave that behind in pursuit of Jesus and, and trying to study the scriptures and live as if you believe them. So for me, I wouldn't go to a church that they supported Trump, you know, from the pulpit. There's got to be a difference between a church whose head pastor sort of praises Trump in a sermon and just a church where, you know, more than 50 percent of the congregants voted for Trump, but it's not overtly political in messaging. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've heard these conversations come up in a few different places, and it's just so specific to the individual and how they're able to function and thrive. And, you know, there's probably some personalities that are more fit for conflict, but I will just say it's been really great. The church I attend, they recognize that they have a diverse congregation with diverse political opinions, and yet the leadership is primarily people of color and lament and speaking about some politics is just a part of the service. And it's just been so comforting for me to just to be able to go to church and say, everyone's aware of what's going on in the world. And all of us are aware that our neighbors are suffering. And that's just been so comforting to me. So maybe one thing I'm trying to get at here is another thing that is sort of a hallmark of let's just say white evangelicalism here. That's kind of what I've been talking about this whole time. But not only is there this longing for power, but there is this triumphalism, right? Everything has to be good and God is in control and God will be victorious. And I don't know, man, my neighborhood is suffering. A lot of people in the U.S. are suffering. And if your church doesn't have space to address that, I just think that's going to be soul crushing in the end and really out of step with the world, you know? You're talking about you have found your own church, which Mm -hmm. most of the evangelicals, as you said, on your Facebook feed, in your extended family or whatever, would not want to attend. So your staying within the evangelical fold is less a function of where you attend church and more a function of who you are talking to and who you are in communication with, right? Yeah. And I would also say, you know, I write for Christianity Today, you know, the flagship evangelical publication and that's been an interesting experience right (laughs) like trying I'm a really intense person in real life as you know Dan and trying to continue to speak to my community but much wider I don't know it's been challenging because I don't think you can evangelize or reform or agitate or correct people that you don't love and I'm still struggling with that and I'm still working on the love piece, right? So, <laughs> yeah. I love when I find people that 
say the things that I think and I feel and I believe, but in a more articulate and intellectual way. She is incredibly articulate. She She's a fantastic writer. She said all the things that I believe. Yeah. She, we're both homeschooled. We're both pastor's kids. We both found ourselves to be evangelicals, sort of like, mm. okay, I guess that's sure. If you yeah. tell me that's the quiz, I take sure. I'll do that. We're the same. We're the same person. She's just smarter and better. <laughs> I won't speak to the comparison part, but I will say I think that's very normal, not just for evangelicals, but for anybody like someone you just you get a certain age and someone starts talking about the people that you grew up around and you're like, oh, I guess that's me. Like no yeah, one. Yeah. Most people don't have a big flag. Yeah. When I was four, you know. I was like, well, my name's Ellen. I'm an evangelical. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although some people I bet have to do Although that. Although when you were four, you were the only type of person in America who was like being constantly pressured to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, which did flag <laughs> you as an evangelical maybe to others. So there is. Do you, can so, I tell you about our baptisms when I, I was a kid? Sure. Well, tell so me. when we were a kid, we would have baptisms like you, you do it in your home with your families kind of thing. We didn't do them at church. Interesting. I mean, we did, they, we did have baptisms at church, but like usually the kids, like their parents would baptize them at church or yeah. at home. Interesting. Didn't know that. And there was this whole concept of like the uh, inner man, like this evil, sinful man, this yeah, man, the flesh, or the something. flesh. Yeah. but in my mind, you know, you, when you're kids, you're so literal. So oh, no. there was, oh, no. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where's this going? So when my, me and my brothers, when we were kids, there was like this illustration where we had, you know, those little green army men. Yeah. Yeah. So my dad would like baptize in the bathtub and then <gasps> this green army man would appear in you. It was like the man, it was like this old sinful man that is now like not in you anymore. And you were just, it was like this weird, like. But, but this is just once per kid. Baptism slash magic trick. <laughs> so pull, look at this and look at this quarter. Yeah, from behind my ear. <laughs> This quarter is original sin. Exactly. (laughs) It was awesome. I mean, my dad is so funny and sweet. And I'm sure if I saw someone do that now, I'd be like, oh, that's silly and ridiculous. But that was a big deal when I was a kid, like the old sinful man. But how do you, but you remember that from just. (laughs) Well, to be fair, those, they're all just, they're in fatigue because it's all all the same green. Yeah. Just kind of spray painted. The helmet, the whole deal. But this was just once per kid, right? You didn't get multiple baptisms. Just the one time. As long as soon as you were able to proclaim that Jesus Christ was your Lord, you wanted him to live in your heart, then Then you got the magic trick. Turn the VHS recorder on. You could imagine uh, an atheist who's listening and thinking, hate to break it to you, Ellen, but the whole thing was a magic trick. (laughs) Burn. Yeah. I don't think it was. Um, there's a lot of things I would like to talk about, about Danielle. I'm sure you have some things too. Can we start with the textbooks? I'm so sorry. <laughs> You'd never heard this, I right? I thought it was bad when I was growing up, but y'all had it real bad. We're the same age. So you mean... No, I mean, I think, because I was homeschooled as well. Yeah. I wasn't I homeschooled. I, the ones that I, mean, I had she, were in a Christian she, school. She was homeschooled. I was yeah. homeschooled and then went to a Christian school, but I yeah. did not have... I mean, we didn't re- learn a lot about like a lot of the suffering of the minorities. Yeah. I don't think most anybody did. Yeah. And what y'all were talking about sounds pretty grim and scary. So, so after, let's talk about that. After talking with Danielle, so in this interview, I had not, I mean, I had read these books, but not thought about them for decades. And after interviewing Danielle, this was a while ago that we had this interview. I bought some too. I went on eBay. I did. I and cannot I, wait to see them. I've spent a little bit of time going through them, not as much as I'd like, but I can confirm 
that some of the parts are not that bad, just kind of standard history textbooks. But then there are definitely times where it says like, these Native Americans were wiped out because they didn't trust God enough. That's disgusting. That's so uh, gross. And then in one of the science textbooks. But who wrote that? Someone wrote yes. that and then oh, yeah, published and it. And it. it was like, oh, yeah. yep. And they're the biggest publisher of Christian textbooks in the world, or at least in America. They were. I think they still are. Uh, and that's why we didn't find out how they died until much <laughs> later. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then in one of the science textbooks, they're teaching quote, creation science theories like the canopy theory, which is the idea that, well, the reason that the dinosaurs could live before the flood is that there was a big canopy of water vapor uh, above the earth. And then that was the flood. Right. So this is the idea. What and a that stretch. The, the, ca- the vapor made the earth hotter and hospitable for dinosaurs and like Jurassic style vegetation. It's kind of a obviously it's mental gymnastics. The point is no one. No creation scientists still believed that when it was in my textbook. It had been discredited by creation scientists as a theory because it would be so hot that nothing could live. Well, I would point out, though, that it's probably financially a situation where you can't always, like, afford new textbooks for all your... I mean, it's true. Okay, but it had had been years. And their job is to educate Christian youths... And they no, are lying. I'm a people pleaser. They're I'm just including stuff to think that no that one is. believes anymore. That's dark. It's dark. That's fresh. That's misinformation. And the one thing I want to say related to this, and then we'll take one of your points, is she said, I've been trying to parse out why evangelicalism was a bubble. And I want to tell you, Danielle, we found the answer last season. Parallel institutions. These books are a part of that. Yeah. So are Bible colleges. So it was McGee and me. So all of it. It. This is how. Can we it just happened. make sure that DC Talk is not left in this? You mean you want them to have a pass? I want them to have a pass. Well, you know they had crossover uh, radio success, so I think they might get I a pass. I just don't want. I just want to make sure, be real clear that we're not leaving. No, no. DC Talk DC is more Talk like you have the local Double A baseball team, like in Tacoma, the the Rainiers, yeah, yeah. and then one of those guys gets drafted by the Mariners. That's our DC, That's Talk. DC Talk. <laughs> they got drafted into even the big if they're leagues. not winning any games, it doesn't matter. They made it to the they big leagues. <laughs> oh, well, they definitely made some money. But so anyway, what do you got? Well, she ta- she talked about how it was designed to be a bubble. Was it really designed to be? A, do you think it was designed to be a bubble? Insofar as there was consensus. Like among not be even, of the world kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, I think there was consensus that, well, certainly there's a market, right? So there's a market amongst Christian parents, especially, and baby boomers, right? Who yeah. have young kids at this time, that they want stuff that is not tainted by secular culture. And so then once there's a market, God, that word secular, somebody will make it and then they'll buy it. I mean, yeah. that's just how capitalism works. Right. Yeah. And so insofar as, yeah, there was a market for parallel institutions and then people consciously made parallel institutions and they made a living. And, and many of them surely thought they were doing the Lord's work and probably did plenty of the Lord's work. You know, like, I don't think McGee and Me is like really a bad no, thing. For no, no, no. Or VeggieTales, right? for example. Right. The, great, these are good pieces show. of art for kids. Like, it's the, the point is not that everyone is implicated who made everything. Yeah. I do think that some of these, te- some of this textbook stuff is blatant deception. Well, it has a lot to do with the fact that evangelicals seem to really want to gain power for influence. I want to see like a current 
super evangelical textbook now. Yeah, that'd be interesting. We we can grab one, I'm sure. I actually, so I was listening to her talk about power, and I wanted to push back a little bit on that. I think that mostly she's talking about political power, by the way, it's political power and social capital. And right now, evangelicals of the type we're talking about have a ton of political power. I mean, they have Trump's ear. Trump knows he has to do what they want for him to have any success. Right. And so, you know, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are examples of this and, you know, whatever, something about the Johnson Amendment and some vague stuff about religious liberty. But I think that sometimes people want power for good, like pro-life people want power so that they can save children from being killed. And so I don't think power is always bad. And and this is something I've been thinking about a lot. Well, if you become focused on the power and not care about the influence is what I'm saying. If you stop caring about the influence. And so I guess what I would say is if you find yourself saying, yeah, I do want power to protect the innocent, then I think you need to think about who are some other innocents, innocent people, like how about Syrian refugees, for instance? Right. Uh, They're innocent and really suffering, but currently evangelical power in, in the polls is weighted against letting them in. And we are now going to be letting in 2018 the lowest amount of refugees America has accepted in like 50 plus years. Well, I think ultimately you have to focus on the influence and then power comes with if you, I mean. Well, maybe. I'm sure there's some like people It's like on that say, show Shark Tank. It's like, okay, <laughs> I've got a really great product. If you don't have a great product, you're not, no one's going to fund you to begin with. So you have to have some sort of. Yes. Influence. Yeah. And, and there and, I am talking about TV shows again. Well, that's okay. At least it I wasn't true I don't have a crime. job. So I do think that, of course, there's something to that. And yeah, I, I think that there's going to be a big sociological backlash to this current moment of evangelical power in politics. But we're not going to know that for a while. I loved what she said about how she and I was the same. It was raised to think that other religions and poor people need our help. Need us to save them. Yes. It's I love that. One hundred percent what we were all yep. and not just what we were raised to believe, what we believe. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's so crazy to it's me. It's crazy. And then she's she goes to try this is what her book is about. Well I guess called, I have to read this one. Yeah, assimilate or go home. It's great. I'll lend you my copy. I really tonight. like her. Oh that I'll would lend, be nice I'll of lend you. It to you. And she talks about how she basically went into these communities ready to save people and transform people. And she ended up becoming saved in a sense, not spiritually transformed by them into someone that resembled more Christ. Could love better, understand better, listen better. Yeah. And that's just like a fantastic story. That, I mean, that's what Christ wants for us is to love better. Right. Dan, I have to say something. And in the beginning of the interview, she said something about, you know, when she was discovering like, oh, yeah, I guess I'm an an evangelical. I care about evangelizing. And uh, I realized this might be an easy answer for you, but here's a question. I never evangelize. Mm -hmm. M-I, I got to say, am I? M? Am I? Please. Is this milk Okay. (laughs) Wagon. Are you? I'm pulling my wagon. <laughs> Am I an evangelical if I actually don't, I don't, Dan, I don't think I'm, I'm an evangelical because I don't think that God needs me to share 
Christ with anyone. Let, me, let me give you a way out. You do this podcast, right? Yeah. And it reaches people and it, ah, crap. And I'm it encourages them. I mean, it's, this is the sense in which I feel like I still am evangelical insofar as I have a very strong reflex to say like, oh, I've discovered this. I would like to share it with yeah, people. Yeah. It is. Imp- and not just I've discovered this. I want to share it like it could be a movie or something. But like, no, you there's something it. about God and relating to God that yeah. I really do think, think this is the most important thing for people to maybe know. Maybe because all my whole life I thought that sharing Jesus with others was saying like, hey, can we talk for a minute? Well, it or, was the four spiritual hey, laws. I, yeah, right. Can I pray for you? Or like... And that goes against everything in my whole being hmm. to be that way. I can practically love someone really well. I can, you know, like do something that you need me to do, but I'm not going to hug you or pray for you or cry with you. And so like, I'm not going to talk about Jesus with people unless it's like a a conversation over beers. C- comes and it's up like, organically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to chat with you in the lobby of the church and ask you how your walk is. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think some of that's cultural. I think that some of, some of that's just like so our parents' generation we're saying, I'm still an us. evangelical. I think you still are. I don't uh, think that's enough to We'll find out you. next episode. I am excited because we have a really interesting patron-only episode this week. This is something that I'm doing now twice a month, 30 to 45 minute episodes exclusively for our backers on Patreon. And this one is a three-way conversation between myself, recording artist Tyson Mottenbacher, and writer, teacher, musician Sarah Shotwell. Mostly we're talking about the overlap of the touring music world and the Me Too moment, as well as sexism in general. The three of us were all on tour together in the summer of 2016, but Sarah also did multiple tours with my band Sherwood, and we focus a bit on the tour we did in 2009 opening up for Hanson. Yes, you heard that right, Hanson, the Hanson brothers. And uh, there are some moments here where Sarah lovingly but firmly puts me in my place, and uh, it's both serious and funny, and I think a timely conversation. And I really loved it. Here are a couple short clips from that conversation in case you're not sure if you're interested yet. Um, and that that to me is the most dangerous part. It's this sort of this shadow of um, like someone that feels superhuman um, combined with drugs and alcohol, combined with late, late nights, combined with this like what happens in Vegas feeling, which is that like this isn't real life and no one will know. That, that to me is the recipe of why sex abuse happens on tours and also why... I think it's really hard for people to talk about it because, um, yeah, the whole point is no one's, we're not going to have to talk about it. Maybe like a 16 year old fan really does want to sleep with a front man and they lie about their age. Those things happen. Those happen in the music industry. I've seen it happen and I'm not making an attempt to victim blame or anything. It's a part of this weird part of music culture that unlike TV, I can watch Brad Pitt on a movie, but I'm not in a situation where Brad Pitt could ever like call me out of a crowd backstage. I remember feeling just in general across the board, a lack of professional respect from guys, not just you, from everyone on the tour, with the exception of two people. They're not treating me like I'm a sexual object and they're not treating, they're not talking down to me like I'm an infant. They're just treating me like I'm one of them. And for every single other of those 35 people, yes, Dan, you included. Yeah, I was waiting for that. (laughs) 
I just felt like I wasn't thought of as a person. I just kind of felt like a tag along, like my job didn't matter and that my opinions didn't matter. And and there was a certain amount of that that did feel sexist to me because I noticed sometimes on that tour and then also later on just touring myself in a band that there's this way that guys talk to each other when they're talking about music or gear or whatever the job is. There's like this talking past you thing that guys do sometimes, I think, when they don't realize it, where they'll ask a question and they'll like talk right past me to ask a question of the guy, even though I'm the one who should be answering it. Or just an assumption that I was there just to like follow my boyfriend around when I was there to work. The guys on the tour who were by far the nicest and most respectful were Taylor Hansen and Jack Antonoff, who are by far now, you know, the most successful out of that entire tour. Successful (laughs) out of everyone on the tour. And they were the ones who I just didn't think were, were treating me weird. That's the only way I can put it. I just felt weird the whole time. If what you just heard piques your interest, then you can go to patreon.com slash depolarize right now. Sign up to be a patron for as little as $3 a month, and you can hear this conversation and all the ones that are patron only that have come before. Patreon.com slash depolarize. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Now back to the show, and we're going to be hearing from Caitlin Beatty, former editor of Christianity Today, author and speaker. What are the good things that growing up evangelical instilled in you? That's a really good question. So just as a bit of background, I actually wasn't totally raised evangelical. My parents were kind of nominal Christians for a lot of my childhood. So we would go to church because my parents thought that was just what good parents do. But we never talked about faith or the Bible or Jesus or anything at home until I was 13. And we all started going to a contemporary kind of seeker, seeker friendly United Methodist Church. And through the relationships there, the three of us, my parents and I all had pretty profound conversion experiences. Some of your listeners might know of the band Jeff Moore in the Distance. And totally. I... <laughs> Yes, I don't know what what they're doing these days, but Home Run was their their big hit. And so I I went to a Jeff Moore in the Distance concert with a friend from youth group. And at the end of the concert, there was an altar call. And I decided, even though this might be nerdy and the boys in the youth group might make fun of me, I'm going to stand up and make a decision for Jesus. And I would really credit that with a big change in my life. And so I think the evangelicalism that was presented there, and that's kind of this classic evangelical experience, actually allowed me to make a decision for myself about my own spirituality. It wasn't just handed down to me from my parents. It wasn't just, you know, you go to church and that's all that matters. It was really something that I was asked to invest in on a personal level. That's maybe something that's undervalued or underlooked at about the altar call, which of course, many people of of our generation and and ilk have some reservations about maybe the manipulation of that move, but it does ask you to take it personally seriously. That's interesting. Yeah. And I mean, you know, looking at it now, if I could 
have a bird's eye view on what was happening then now, I would, of course, probably be a little bit horrified by the way that the music was used and the way that sure. the pastor was talking. But regardless, I mean, I think something real happened there that was really on account of my decision. This is not true for all evangelical churches or cultures, but as a young woman in the United Methodist Church, I was actually really encouraged to exercise gifts of leadership, of public speaking, of learning the Bible better, teaching the Bible. I was asked to do a lot of leadership projects growing up, like in youth group and in high school. My youth pastor was a woman, and she's now the lead pastor of a large church in Michigan. That was really important to me as a woman, you know, thinking about my gifts and career and what does it mean to live out the faith in a significant way. I was given really positive models of that. One core value of the evangelical movement is that your your faith really matters for how you live. It's not just a tradition that is passed down to you. It's not just an assent to a particular set of beliefs that you engage on Sunday, but then leave for the rest of the week. It's really significant to believe that your faith would profoundly change how you live in the world and interact with your neighbors every day. I don't go to a United Methodist Church anymore. I go to an Anglican church. I'm very like pro-liturgy, pro-liturgical calendar. I, I think there is something to be said about the roteness for the ritual of church and of the spiritual disciplines that are actually good because one of the downfalls of evangelicalism is a really intense emphasis on how you're feeling. And if the feelings aren't there, then you're not going to show up. I definitely think the emphasis on kind of this profound personal experience kind of early on in your spiritual journey without a lot of structure or expectation for personal transformation is a real weakness of the movement. And it really leads to a lack of solid discipleship. For a lot of Christians, Christians think, well, essentially my conversion is about avoiding hell, you know, and going to heaven. And so my, my time on earth is really about kind of waiting for that new day when I get to go to heaven. And obviously a lot of theologians and, and scholars have kind of critiqued this element of it. But I think that we, we live with that residual teaching. And so when you're not feeling it, and I, I shared recently about this on social media. When I was 21, um, senior in college, I had some pretty serious mental health issues where I just wasn't able to feel the way that I thought I needed to feel during worship and during church and during, you know, Bible study. And I really thought like, I've lost my faith because I don't have the feelings that I did. And I think that's really dangerous. I think we need to give Christians something more substantial than whatever they're feeling. Obviously, the way that evangelicalism in the U.S. at least has been co-opted by certain political allegiances and a sort of default assumption that if you are a Bible-believing Christian, you will vote a certain way, you will prioritize certain social issues over others, you will ignore certain social issues over others. That has led to a real crisis of authority for the church in the public square because we are seen by a lot of our neighbors as just a useful political voting block, right? And, you know, the 2016 election was such 
a rude awakening for me and so many others because I thought that we had kind of gotten over the Republican thing. Like, I, I thought that we had moved past the mistakes of the moral majority in the 70s and 80s. We knew that, you know, being a Christian doesn't just mean voting for the Republican candidate, no matter who it is. But I, I think that is still very much a dynamic at play, and it's hurting the church massively in the United States. Totally. I think you can't talk about the 81% without talking about the way that black Christians who in their theology and the way they read the Bible in the way that they worship are theologically speaking evangelical you know they're not they're not mainline Christians they're not charismatic Christians they are in some theological and sociological definition evangelicals but their inability to support President Trump around issues of race you know, comments that he has made about certain groups of people certain policies that he has put into place. White Christians really have to reckon with the fact that the 81% has really furthered divides in the U.S. church between white Christians and black Christians. There is a sense of betrayal, the sense that when so much of the church in America has voted for someone like Trump, that communicates loud and clear to Christians of color and there's a lot of work to be done to repair that broken relationship between black Christians and white Christians. I think that if you are reading the Bible well from beginning to end, and you're looking at it as a grand story of what God intended for the world and for humans and what God has done for humans in the person of Christ and what he is doing and will do, we believe that God is actively present in our world. And so he cares about the world. He loves the world. He sent his son to redeem the world. And so I don't know how opting out of cultural engagement or political engagement or quote unquote worldly engagement is an option if you're following the pattern of the redemptive arc that we see in scripture you know, there, there is something to be said about acknowledging that the kingdom is not ushered in by human hands at the end of the day, that there's some mysterious thing that's going to happen, cataclysmic, apocalyptic, where, where God is putting things to rights. It's not up to us. And so we need to be careful about understanding our own limitations and what we are actually capable of changing or doing during our time on earth. But Faithful discipleship means some form of engagement because we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, you know, love God and love neighbor. You can't really separate those two. And so if we're neglecting our neighbors who are caught up in real worldly social political concerns, then we're not living out the gospel. We're living out a truncated gospel. We're living out one part of the gospel. That was like a 10 minute, super tight sermon. Like I just finished that listening back to that with you. And I was like, I should probably go listen to that again. Yeah. <laughs> so much in there. I know I always say that, but man, Caitlin has thought a lot about this stuff. Yeah. The term altar call is a trigger for me. Oh no. <laughs> How come? Well, I think it probably is for a lot of people. I mean, 
To be when honest, you, if you're not in that culture, you don't even know what that term is. Altar call is at the end of a speech or a band playing or a short film showing or a testimony given when the pastor or speaker invites people to come up and give their life to Christ right then and there. Or maybe as the years went on and people stopped doing it, it was like, just raise your eyes. Like first yeah. it was like, walk forward. In the Great Awakening, it was like, run forward. Yeah. Then in like run down the, the 1950s, it's walk down the aisle. Then like when in the 90s, it's like, raise your hand. And then like the most recent ones I've seen is like, just lift your eyes and I see you. And now it's like, God knows. Those. God knows. God knows. But yeah. why? That's the thing I never understood was why does the pastor have to know who, you know what I mean? It's I think such the idea a, is so they can pray with him afterward or something. Yeah, but there's I also, know, it's also it's kind of like the whole thing. It's a whole thing. We've given I'll tell you what, when I was, uh, I would go to our church summer camp every summer. Yeah. I don't know if you yeah. saw that coming. I did. Yeah. I didn't um, think you went to your summer camp every winter. And we had altar calls, of course. And I went to a, I wouldn't say like a Pentecostal church, but it was fairly like, you know, it would get rowdy when the Holy Spirit would move. <laughs> Do you, okay, anyway, well, just keep going. Yeah. So I remember this one particular year where there's just like, I maybe was like 13 and or 12, 13. And so it was like, you know, boys and hang summer camp was all about like, you know, f- your best friends and journaling. I'm pretty sure I know what summer camp was all yeah. about. <laughs> So it was not a lot of journaling. But, I yeah, remember that there was this one uh, altar call that happened where people were being, you know, like cast in the Holy Ghost. And they've fallen back. Yeah. The and then there yeah. was this like laughing hysterically. Yeah. I've heard and of that. I grew up from a Maranatha pastor who actually saw demons like come out of people's mouths and all these crazy things. And so I was used to that. But it was so weird to be in a social context as a teenager, feeling like I kind of wanted to go along with it, even though I wasn't, you know, quote unquote, feeling it. And then I wanted to make sure that I was also slain in the spirit. (laughs) And so here I was like going up and like wanting to get anointed with oil and pushed down and faking. I mean, I remember vividly I faked it and I still feel kind of like shit and gross about that because well, that's I mean, the tough question. Like in God those, and I are good about it. Yeah, but you don't you don't feel like guilty. It's such yeah. a strange experience. Well, there, there's a lot of dynamics there. It's complicated. It's mysterious. But yeah, there is a question like how many people need it to happen for real before everyone else starts. Right. Or why do you have it? to have that kind of experience? Yeah, I don't. And I where don't know. were the youth pastors and the worship leaders who were sort of like looking out for protecting people's like spiritual experience? They were there, just weren't. It wasn't just, it just or wasn't. Or they thought thing. that having that happen to you was the best thing for your spiritual experience. Yeah. And so they did yeah. think they were. And now I know that. that when you have a spiritual gift, like I believe that speaking in tongues is a real thing, but I think it's done like with an interpreter, with all an that. Interpreter, you don't yeah. just like, not ever, everybody, you know, remember that movie, that documentary, uh, Christ or Jesus, Jesus Camp? Camp. Oh, yeah. Yes. So oh, that yeah. was like, I would say that was like a hundred percent. Yours And was what a, I experienced was maybe like a 60%. Yeah, like and so 60. it wasn't like yeah. a, here's a cutout of George Bush and everybody must speak in tongues. But obviously if I felt pressure <laughs> to do like to throw myself on the ground and yeah, fake laugh, I mean, pressure. that's, yeah. I, that's, 
it scares me. I don't have an opinion about this stuff. I, I think it's just complicated. It is weird to me. I go to a Presbyterian church. Like I'm, my personality is such that it's weird to me, but I also think that like God speaks to me or in some sort of way, not audibly like regularly in prayer. So I don't know how different are those things. I don't think those things are here. I am throwing myself on the ground. God's never spoken to me. Throwing yourself at his, at his mercies. So we're going to come back to Caitlin in a bit, but in this context, I think it would be good to hear from one additional voice, Jamar Tisby. He's a historian, African-American guy, co-host of Pass the Mic podcast. He, his work centers on the history of race and religion in America. Fascinating dude. He was on last season and he'll be more on this season, but today we're just going to get a couple minutes with him. And I wanted to ask him specifically about this question, should people stay or should they go in the context of Christians of color, many of whom are asking this same question, but they're asking it in a really different kind of a way. So here's Jamar. Should a non-white Christian who holds evangelical beliefs identify as evangelical? Is it worth sticking around or even joining an evangelical movement if, say, they just found out that they're evangelical? Or is it better to leave it if you are a Christian of color? I can just speak for myself. And for me, it's not worth it to try to cling to this label, which is sad because actually historically there is something called a black evangelical. I think theologically, absolutely, there are black people who would fit the criteria of evangelical. And so that's one level. But Socially and politically, it's been so tied up with conservatism and with the Republican Party, neither of which is is very friendly to black people right now. It is definitely not worth it for me. And, And that's just Jamar speaking. But I do know a lot of other black people who feel this way. And you got to understand that the majority of black Christians are part of a predominantly black fellowship or denomination. And so these questions on the definition or the validity of evangelicalism, they're not even in on the radar for a lot of black right. Christians. It's really just folks like me who spend a lot of time around white Christians <laughs> who are even really contemplating this issue. But it is going to be a struggle and a battle and a fight. And I think a lot of black Christians right now who maybe didn't grow up in the black church or have been away for a season are reevaluating and saying, well, maybe, maybe I do need to be in the black church right now. As a thoughtful black Christian, if a white person considers themselves evangelical, theologically speaking, and is toying around with leaving the evangelical church, that could either mean no longer identifying as evangelical or leaving an evangelical congregation for another one. Do you wish that those racially aware white Christians would stay in the evangelical movement? Do you wish that they would leave and join other movements that could compete with the voice of evangelicalism? Like, where do you stand on that? Yes. (laughs) Yes and yes. I think there are are definitely, yes, exactly. Both are good. I think there are definitely some people who are called to stay and can do a lot of good because white people can hear from another white person some things they they can't or wouldn't receive from black people. 
And there's a guy at Boyce College named Matthew Hall who's got his PhD in history from the University of Kentucky, studied civil rights movement. He's a white guy and knows history, knows racial dynamics, knows systemic and institutional sin. And he's in a strategic place at it's the feeder college to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And so him staying there, I think, is very important because he can bring an incredibly rich perspective there. But there are other people who, white Christians, who are in fellowships or institutions, and it's just grating on them. It's killing their soul because there's no change or a slow pace of change. They truly have a heart for not just advocating for minorities, but for being near them and with them and walking with them. And it's a very incarnational kind of activism that they're involved in. And in those cases, they may need to consider joining a different fellowship, whether multi-ethnic or, or predominantly black or another race or ethnicity. So it depends on one's calling, but I definitely think we need folks staying where they are to kind of speak truth to power. But I'll say in the same breath, I don't consider that the same burden on black people as for white people. I say that because black people in those contexts are a racial minority. And they have to deal with all the stuff that comes with that on top of trying to speak truth to power. And that can be doubly exhausting. And so I think it's a different level of responsibility. Ellen, at the risk of some kind of white guilt and self-loathing, I was just listening to Jamar talk about this very serious situation and going, Huh, I wonder if our discussion about altar calls really moved that conversation forward or not. Oh. <laughs> Jamar is the best. We're, we can't expect to be as good as him or Caitlin or Danielle, for that matter. Are we dumb, Dan? We're not, not dumb. dumb. We're just, they they really have their shit together. It's really convicting when it's like, you can't just be a part of a church that talks about doing it, but you have to be near them and with them and doing life with them. And I've had this conversation with you and many other friends where it's like, not only me, but I want my daughter to be raised around minorities. And well, by the time she's in her twenties, minority, the word minorities is going to look different. I think. Uh, No, it's it's not till like, it's not for like 30 or 40 years. Well, in 2016, the 51% of all births were. That's true. So her generation, actually the generation older than your daughter is the first generation to be majority non-white. But what I'm saying is like, I want her to be around people of, I don't even want to say people of color anymore. I just want to like all, all people, whether it be different abilities or different genders third I, I feel hope that a third gender is a is a thing when she and it's like not even a, a you do i mean if the third gender is intersex for instance that's what i mean yeah that's not i mean like you wouldn't wish that on someone no, no, no but what i'm saying is i hope that she is around those people that's what i'm saying sure yeah and i hope that, that she she's around people of, couple, easily. of color and it's not a it's not like this uh a thing you know, but yeah. where I struggle is that I happen to be surrounded by a bunch of white folks. Yeah, you live in the suburbs of Seattle. And so, yeah. um, where I live is like less white than 
your actual Some neighborhood. Other, yeah, 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 yeah. You have a lot of good Asian restaurants oh walking God. distance from your house. Asian I people often drive, as well. <laughs> I drive within walking distance of your house all the time. To I eat. know, because yeah. the hosting you place. Oh my gosh, hosting you. So good. Um, but what I'm saying is, like, how do I place my, my my friend who is Taiwanese? I was telling her this. Like, I want my my daughter to be around people of color. I want her to know about yeah. all kinds of different cultures, and and I want her to not know anything different. Yeah, than but that. What, yeah. yeah. And she said, "Well, how are you gonna how are you gonna do that?" And I'm thinking, like, oh shit. Well, uh, one way is public school in your neighborhood would be a good way. Right, but she's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an step ex- one. That's an example. Or, but then, but but or then what find if, a church that's truly multiracial. But what if public school is mostly white where we live? And it then do we have to change churches well, yeah. just for that? And well, you have to figure out how important it is, right? This is the interesting thing. I thought it was interesting that Jamar said, by the way, he, he said it kind of low key, but it was like, and by the way, most black Christians are in black denominations and none of this is even on yeah. their radar. <laughs> so good. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. They are just doing their thing and they're just like, yeah. you guys are crazy and we're not even thinking about it. Yeah. But for those of us not in a black congregation, we do have to think about or we probably <sighs> ought to think about this right now. Well, we ought yeah. to and we ought to figure out like how we can be implementing these things into our lives. I just liked it. I like how clear he is on the experiential difference. I feel like Jamar really understands sort of the white Christian experience and the black Christian experience. Not that he has encyclopedic knowledge about everything, but he's able to get his mind around what it is like to be in those situations. Yeah. And I always find that so helpful when someone can get uh, can get around that and sort of explain that. Yeah. And then just that's when it'll knock me upside the head. Like the the bare fact that most black Christians are not thinking about this. That's interesting. The reason it strikes me is because I can't help but think about it. Oh, you're it is a, like at the front of my a mind. Different breed, Dan. But but when I say to people, I'm working on a podcast about white support for Trump, white evangelical support for Trump, and all the question that brings up. Anyone raise evangelical, still evangelical, still a Christian if they're white, but they aren't evangelical. Everyone's like, oh, totally, dude. Like, that's that's interesting. And then Jamar's like, just so you know. This is a cute podcast. Oh, that's a cute idea. Yeah, that's cute. Most of my friends don't care. But then at the same time, he's like, he knows of people by name who are like, yeah. In institutions, doing good work. He's but glad you, they're there. I'm going to ask this him. again. It's like, how do I, as apparently I'm an evangelical. Oh, yeah. How do I, quote unquote, leave the tribe, if you will? Even if I still carry those beliefs, because I can't just change those things overnight, yeah. like those seven points or yeah, whatever. You can't change your core tenets. But like but I told you before, I never really call myself an evangelical. I wouldn't say I go to an evangelical church. You do though. And so do I, just so you know. Sure. But if yeah. you ask, yeah, if I check the box, but I don't identify as that. Well, so who cares? Why don't you mean? just, why don't you just talk to the leadership at your church and say, I'd like more interaction with the non-white church in our city. It exists. Can we have more intentional 
but, communal time with them. But you're saying that that is the opposite of evangelicalism. And no, I don't I think just it know, is. I just happen to know your church because <laughs> a lot of my friends go there. Uh, Are you just saying because no, they're all white? We're all but, white. But, but it is actually. Not no, all it, white. I just want to do a shout out to my church. Definitely not all, not white, all white and not all in their 20s and 30s. Right. Uh, just saying. Sure. I want. I do want to say that my one of my favorite quotes from the last a couple of years was someone who said they were talking about white guilt and and how this problem that white people are like. Well, what are we supposed to do about it? I had nothing to do with slavery and all this. It's like okay, but it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. And I love that hmm, because yeah. only we as white people can change the temperature and. It's not my fault that racism exists. It's not my fault right. that slavery was a thing. But now I sort of hold the key. This and is I, why, I yeah. love that. This is why I love this concept of Catholic social teaching so much, which is about money, but you can apply it to social capital too, which is the more. Well, we just went, <laughs> we went a, elsewhere. No, no. I mean, it's going it's okay. to land. I'm hanging on. The more resources you have the higher and greater your responsibility is to those with fewer resources. I see. I see that's what you're the, saying. Yeah. That's the formula. Yeah. And so all then it takes is to go, I didn't own slaves. I don't, maybe my right. grandpa didn't, but I do have cultural power. I have economic power. I mean, I'm a homeowner in North Seattle. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a white collar job. I have plenty of power and I have plenty of privilege and resources. And the more I have... If I'm getting more, my work to help those with less should be increasing as my resources that's, increase. Uh, yeah. I, I just think yeah. that's a, the simplest and most beautiful yeah. way yeah, to yeah. talk about it. It though. makes the most sense. To, Have you ever seen that show Finding Your Roots? I think it's on A&E. No, <laughs> I don't watch A&E. Oh, Dan, you'd love it. Okay, so this guy, he's a historian. He takes a couple celebrities. So every... <laughs> Where is this going? Okay, every episode he's got... Whether there be two comedians or a couple okay. of basketball, you know, there's like a yeah. theme. And what he does is he shows them their, you know, through DNA and yeah. through a ton of research, he shows them like where they came from. And a lot of these people, they're finding out like they're not even great, 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 but it was yeah. like their great grandfather owned a bunch of slaves. And you can Ooh. see their names and their sex and yeah. their age and all that stuff. You haven't seen it. That does so sound you good. should watch it. We love it at our house. Like Fred Armisen's episode was one of my favorite ones. He's thought he was Japanese this whole time, but he's actually Korean. Oh, funny. But anyway, it's just like when you find out where you come from and you're a part of this something. Yeah, larger tapestry, Yeah, right? it's just yeah. wild. It's wild. Speaking of ancestry, I did just get my results back and I am a whopping. White. A whopping 100% white. 100% white. I am 59% normal. I'm not. Just so just so people are wondering, I'm not as white as Dan. <laughs> Ellen in is case slightly these, less white. In than case me. these conversations go a little, you know, down a path that I wouldn't be proud of, I am not 100% white. Anyway, on that really note. Really proud of that. <laughs> we're going to go back to Caitlin Beatty author, former editor of Christianity Today, who gave us just so much compressed goodness earlier. And we're going to hear from her for a bit longer. Looks to be about 10 or 12 minutes of an interview with Caitlin. Here she is. So in some sense, I don't actually think that it's a meaningful statement for me to say that I am leaving evangelicalism or I have left the movement because 
culturally and sociologically, I am part of it. Like this was the soil. Evangelicalism was the soil into which my faith was planted when I was 13. It is what has raised me in a, in a big way. Like when I found out Billy Graham died last week, I cried. I mean, not because I agreed with Billy Graham on everything, but because he is such a important figurehead for me and for kind of the spiritual family that I have belonged to. So in that sense, no, I'm not leaving evangelicalism. I do think, though, that when I acknowledge that that word, that label is distasteful for a lot of fellow Christians, I really do have to think through how I use the label and when. The fact that most of my fellow black Christians not only don't identify with the label, but like find it really problematic is a real red flag for me. You know, if I'm insisting on keeping this language that is odious to a lot of my brothers and sisters in Christ and is also not used by many Christians in the global South, you know, like they're not sitting around having these debates about, should we keep the label? What does it mean? Because they're just trying to survive as Christians, oftentimes in really hostile cultural environments. And so isn't that just kind of a Maslow hierarchy thing though? I mean, maybe they would be having these debates if more of that community's basic material and whatever needs were being met. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you could always say, well, (laughs) we're privileged because the people over there have it worse. So yes, of course, like, or just, I guess, I mean, it's still worth having conversations about self-actualization, even if some people are still figuring out shelter to continue the Maslow hierarchy metaphor. Yeah, I I think that's right. But I, I do think it's interesting that there are millions and millions of Christians the world over who are really content with the label Christian. Like, like, let's not lose the power of the word Christian. And in some ways, the label Christian, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of variety and diversity within that label. But it does keep us from some of the political trappings of the evangelical label, right? Like if, if the word conjures up a type of belief system or a type of political system that is actually harmful or is not consonant with like the rest of the global church, then we need to go to where the rest of the global church is. And if they're happy to use the word Christian, then maybe we should be as well. So you may not be leaving evangelicalism, but there was a day that you left Christianity Today as an editor, and that is the Mm -hmm. foremost evangelical publication in America. And there was some interesting timing of that day. Can you tell us that story? (laughs) Yes. So I had been at Christianity Today as an editor for about 10 years, and I would say in the last Two years, I was working on my book. I was getting to write for other publications. And frankly, I was getting a little burnt out on the work of managing the print magazine, not a job for the faint of heart. And so over probably a year of discernment and prayer and conversations with friends, I finally did decide to leave. My last day was October 8th, 2016. 
And, you know, of course, having been at CT for a lot of the 2016 election, all the campaigns, you know, we had to figure out how are we going to cover the election? Complicated what do question. We say? You don't want to sort of alienate millions of people unnecessarily and lose your voice in their lives. But also you want to have a good witness. I mean, I do not envy those editorial conversations. Yeah, I don't miss them, frankly. Like, my blood pressure has steadily decreased. I'm sure. Uh, over the last two years, in some ways. So October 8th, I'm in my office in the Chicago suburbs. I'm, like, packing up all my books and, you know, office supplies. And a coworker comes to my office and says, hey, did you see the news about Trump? I'm like, okay, what, what is he going to say? And he shares, you know, the news blurb about the Access Hollywood tape I had two thoughts in that moment. My first thought was, well, I'm not actually that surprised to hear this because it's totally consonant with everything else we know about this person. But also, I am so glad I don't have to figure out how we are going to weigh into this because <laughs> I just do not have the energy. Like, it's not up to me. I don't have to be responsible. That's amazing. So, That's amazing yeah. timing for an editor out the door. <laughs> Yeah. So then, you know, the weekend passed. I'm it's Monday morning. I'm like, wow, first week not having to go to work. This is amazing. What a great Sabbath. And then I start getting all these emails from mainstream media outlets asking for my opinion on Trump's comments and basically asking me to speak for all evangelical women. Like, what do evangelical women think about these comments? And so that week I was like on an Associated Press video. I was on CNN for five minutes. I was interviewed by NPR and ABC News. I mean, it was just so nothing that I could have predicted happening my first week out of work, you that know, so crazy. But I mean, I, I'm also glad to have had the time and the energy to, to say yes to those opportunities, because I think there were enough evangelicals saying, yeah, these comments from this man running for the presidency are really concerning and we need to be really clear that we don't look lightly upon them, you know, and you know yeah. what he's saying is not representative of what we believe. Do you feel like despite your best efforts at giving a sort of a fair minded response that once that election night stat rolled in 81% for Trump that I mean, in a sense, was that work wasted or do you think that it <laughs> stuck around in some way? Yes, this is the question that like keeps me up at night or did for a long time. Like, oh, I guess none of the evangelical leaders who spoke out against Trump had any influence <laughs> over what actually happened in the election, in the voting booth. And so at the end of the day, no matter how eloquent you are on CNN, yeah. people are going to vote from their gut. And oh, you, you mean CNN talking heads can't convince people <laughs> to vote a different way? What a shocker. It's Well, it's really important for me to believe that they can because I was on CNN of for course, five that, minutes. Yeah, your so. self-esteem. Regardless of what CNN can or can't do or what these talking heads can or can't do in terms of influencing how people vote, I do think it's still important to say to our neighbors, look, 
not all evangelicals believe this. Not all evangelicals are okay with this behavior or these comments. Yep. Not all evangelicals support the really clamping down on the number of refugees admitted into this country. In fact, a lot of evangelicals are really troubled by that policy. Yeah. Many evangelicals are really mourned by the way that black people in this country continue to be marginalized or, you know, experience violence. So I, I think it's important regardless of what the results are at the voting booth, because it's just simply important to communicate a clear gospel witness in our time. Should some people stay within evangelicalism and others leave? Is the whole thing toxic enough for certain people that they should just start a new movement? Like how does an individual (laughs) evangelical, however you want to define that, decide what to do in light of all of this? I would actually tell any individual evangelical that they can't figure it out on their own. I mean, I I think that part of the legacy of Protestantism that we live with is that any time that you find yourself in a Christian community or church or denomination that really annoys you or rubs you the wrong way, you have the option of leaving and forming your own community tradition that kind of suits your beliefs and your convictions. And on one level, I want to say, yes, I believe in soul freedom. And if you truly find a church community toxic, you know, that there's levels of spiritual abuse or other forms of abuse, or you're being taught things that are detrimental to your soul, I wouldn't say, well, you have to just stick it out. You know, you just have to grin and bear it. But I think there is something to be reclaimed about leaning into some of these questions in community. And I mean, I'm an Anglican, so I'm just going to tell everybody to become Anglican. But one of the things that I, I love about the Anglican tradition is that I am connected to a worshiping community that transcends time and space where I can sit even in my discomfort at times. I can sit and stay and be part of it. And there is enough room in the tradition and in my particular church to tolerate discouragement, to tolerate disappointment, to tolerate the feeling of, yeah, I'm saying the Nicene Creed and this week I believe like 70 percent of it and the other 30 percent I don't know. Hmm. But I personally, individually don't have to have it all figured out because I'm leaning into this community and tradition that is bigger than me and I trust it more than my own kind of wavering belief system, my own wavering feelings. I mean, I will also just say the church that I go to, I know that there is a spectrum of people in terms of what they believe politically and how they voted. But there is something really beautiful about people who have different political convictions coming together to break bread together every single week to say, what unites us in this and what is happening right here in breaking bread together does transcend the divisions and the polarization that we feel in the body right now. I mean, preach it. Sometimes I think this podcast is just about my journey through evangelicalism. <laughs> Sometimes, Ellen, it actually is about that for big chunks of the episode. There's one thing I wanted to talk about from what Caitlin said, and then if you have anything else, you can add it. 
but she mentioned this part about, so there's the word evangelical and who, who uses that to, you know, that they associate with themselves. But then there's the word Christian. And she's talking about globally. Like, let's not touch that one. Well, she's saying globally, billions of people are fine with the word Christian. Should yeah. we, should we worry about it? And it reminded me of an experience I had listening to another podcast. So now we're getting meta. But I was listening to Richard Rohr as a guest on Pete Holmes's podcast, You Made It Weird. And Pete Holmes is like super far left, like probably not really Christian, but sort of a spiritual guy, likes Jesus. And he said something about, you know, resurrection. But I know it could be like sort of resurrection of the archetypal figure or whatever. And then Richard Rohr is like, well, you know, I'm a Franciscan monk. So, or I'm a Franciscan priest, so I'm kind of a resurrection guy. And I just remember going, oh, what a weight off. Like, oh, he's a f***ing priest. He can't just mince words about the resurrection. He's a Catholic priest. Yeah. And it felt so freeing. If he was to be like weird and lukewarm and cool about it, it would be gross. But but of course he wouldn't because he'd like chose not to get married 50 years ago and has spent his whole life in pursuit of basically contemplative priesthood, right? And I just was like, oh, yeah, I can just say I'm a Christian. Like, Also, you don't do anything hard. No, no, no. (laughs) Of course. But I mean, it just was, it helped me. It was a crystallizing moment for me of like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, I don't need yeah, to very fuck around with There's that something word. really beautiful about just saying like, that's who I am. And I don't have to explain yeah. it. I don't know why, but it's just, it is what it is. Yeah. So that was freeing for me. It reminded me of that. If you don't have anything else to add, I'll just say. Oh, when have I you? never okay, had things to add? Just that the title of evangelical and yeah. what that means to other people. And very quickly I thought, oh, shit. If a title that I identify with or put on myself hurts or offends people, I don't want any part of that. I mean, it's one thing if people disagree with it, but if it's Mm -hmm. hurtful to someone. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't need to be Christian. Let's say someone says, I'm offended that you're a Christian. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah, but there's a a difference. There's There's a a difference. difference because. Like with evangelical, that term is such, to, to me, I think it's like, I think it's kind of dumb. And I can say that apparently because I am one. you are one, yeah. I just don't think it's necessary. I'm a Christian. I don't see what the point is of like picking it apart. Maybe it isn't so much about offending people, but it's more about like, if you identify as an evangelical, certain people, you will not be able to reach them. Maybe that's more what it is. Yeah, but right now, but I mean, right now, the term evangelicalism and being an evangelical is hurtful to many groups of people. I don't, I mean, okay. So, but or I think we, we could be clearer about this. Like, do you think that she's saying, and maybe she is, or maybe you are saying this, that the fact that people are evangelical is in itself painful to certain people? That seems like a weird well, claim. Well, what I'm saying is some of the biggest, most powerful names in the government, the administration, people in power who are waving the evangelical flag are doing very hurtful things. So by association, if we're going right. to say like, oh, yeah, I'm not just a Christian, I'm an evangelical. I just don't see that that's necessary, especially if it's hurtful. I, I think is the way I want right. to say that. I just that. think hurtful is maybe, I think hurtful might be overstating it. It's more just like they will not be your audience if you say that. 
Like I, I disagree. I think some people are really, really hurt right okay, now. Okay. So the Catholic, Catholic church, you know, new sex scandal going on. And it's not like someone goes, oh, the fact that there are Catholics really hurts me. No, like there well, are, of course, Catholics. Yeah. But I mean, for the layman, for most people, these terms mean what they've experienced but, but with I just, these people. I, even so, they like, don't think about like, oh, I know that all Catholics don't think the same. Most people assign a title to their experience with the people of that title. You're basically talking about identity politics, right? It's like people in a group are roughly the same. So if right now in our political climate, in our culture, if evangelicals are really causing hurt uh, for minorities, I don't want any part of claiming that I am that title. Maybe I believe those seven things. Right. But I have no interest in calling myself this okay, name. Okay, that's interesting. So maybe we, okay, we've depolarized it, I think, as my friends like to say, mocking me in our text threads. There's a difference between if someone asks you, are you an evangelical, answering yes or no, and saying, as an evangelical, yes, Ellen. I would never do that. Those are I different, I don't right. think of myself as that. But sure. if you, like you did, you asked me those right. things, like, oh, I guess I believe all those things, so I guess I am one. Well, sure. and it's interesting for someone like Caitlin or Danielle, if they're going to be in the press, they do actually have to decide yeah. how they're going to be referred and to because f- they have those conversations. And that's how I feel about the abortion thing. Like, you have to know what you believe at the starting point. I, like, you have to work it back. So that when people do ask you, you can absolutely answer all the questions. Mm. But I don't go around saying I'm pro-life. That's not something, the the term pro-life is not something I'm comfortable with. I prefer anti-woman. I'm just kidding. Oh my gosh. Okay, we're going to end You know what I'm saying. Yeah, we're going to end on that. No, that's funny. Okay, so if you loved what you heard, I should say, if you didn't love what you heard from Danielle, Jamar, and Caitlin, then what's going on? Who do you need to have a chat with? But if you loved what you heard and you want to be in touch with them or read their stuff, there will be stuff in the show notes for Danielle, Jamar, and Caitlin. And we will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Darling, you got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? If you say that you are mine, I'll be here till the end of Here I am talking about poop. You're like an idiot. <laughs> like editor of a magazine. I'm over here like fucking <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> I'm an idiot. Smart people talking about issues that are really important. And then it's our turn to talk. We have to go. We have to break. Spilled wine. She spilled wine. It's a blooper reel. I mean, I would say that as many episodes as we've done. Without a spill. It's pretty amazing. That's pretty good. And this is a cheap Ikea rug, so it doesn't really matter. The wine spilling just got me really thinking (laughs) about communion. You're ready to get out of here. (laughs) No, 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 no. no, no. Please go on. Should I stay or should I go?